A beginning is a very delicate time. Know then that it is the year 10,191. In this time, the most precious substance in the universe is the spice melange. The spice extends life. The spice exists on only one planet in the entire universe. The planet is Arrakis, also known as Dune. You are about to enter a world where the unexpected. Many dangers exist on Arrakis. The unknown and incredible secrets have been kept on this planet. And the unbelievable meet. I see two great houses. Where kingdoms are built on Earth that moves. But we have one sign the likes of which even God has never seen. And skies are filled with fire. The prophecy which will cleanse the universe and bring us out of darkness. Where a young warrior is called upon to free his people. A world that holds creation's greatest treasure. Yeah, so David Lynch is a pervert, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, hey man, look, okay, we all know, we all know that the Baron has uh, certain proclivities, right? And that's fine. Indeed. You know, uh, there's probably a whole lot to be said about the fact that the only person with such interests and proclivities uh, is a horrible, pustule-covered, villainous monster in this movie. Um I feel like that's a little fucking gross and bad, but, uh, yo dog, that spit scene, number one, like, okay. So saw the movie before I read the book. We'll get into that later. That spit scene. I was like, that's fucking nasty dog. Finished the book and was like, oh, that's fucking nasty dog. What the fuck? What the fuck is Jessica's fucking daughter, dude? He doesn't know that though. Yeah. Well, look, man. It's fucked up. It's fucked up. Across it's really the board. messed up. It's really it's 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 bad news. The Baron is the fucking worst thing that happened in this movie, in my opinion, across the board. Yeah, I mean, uh, casting I don't think is that great. Uh, makeup is not that great. Effects are pretty bad. Um, yeah, M- mind no, killing. I think you might be right. Pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Fearing, pretty bad. Also, <laughs> I saw a fucking uh, a statement that said they had never seen a character in cinematic history that seemed to like the look of the character seemed to define a particular odor very well. And I was like, Oh shit. Yeah. You know that, but you know, that dude stinks. You know, that dude's got a musty stench. Oh, it's worse than that. It's like blood and yeah. And BO and real, it's just that sickly ugh. sweet smell of death and rot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think they make a point of saying in the book that like he covers it up with uh, lots of incense and like oils and stuff or tries to. It's pretty gross, man. 
Um, you know, it's so funny. Like, I, I don't have much fanfare for the movie, but uh, my old co-host from Warlock School did. Um, I love the books. The movie's all right. Uh, we'll get into that. But yeah, Watts fucking just swears up and down by this movie, though. I, I preferred the miniseries. Yeah, we could talk about that miniseries a little bit. Uh, I haven't I've seen parts of it. Yeah, I mean, that'll be like a whole three days and I don't really want to go over it for three days, but it was I liked it better than the movie. I'll just say that. Well, guys, if you haven't figured out, you're listening to Geek Squatch, uh, the podcast all about 80s and 90s nerd nostalgia. Um, we're talking about Dune. I'm your host, Caleb McAllister. Uh, joining me this week, as always, is Alex of House Hirsch and our returning guest to the Baron of House Ransom, Remy. And this week we're talking about, um, you know, the, the thing that makes the spice flow. Um, we're talking about bald ladies, talking about worms. And bad Toto soundtracks. Um, that's right. Uh, I finally convinced the guys to talk about the 1985 David Lynch film adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune. Um, as always, if you've got something to say about the show, um, you should call. Leave us a voice message at 540-692-9165. Um, so let's talk about what Dune is. Because a lot of people have heard of it. Not a lot of people have uh, read it or watched this film. Um probably more reasons to not watch the film than there are to read the book, but it's pretty complicated stuff. It's wait a minute. Hold on. I want to start this whole, before you get into that, this whole conversation sure. to build on the point you just made. I'm a huge fan of fantasy and sci-fi, right? And only really just got around to both of these things. I had seen the Dune movie once before when I was like 13 or something. We rented it from Blockbuster. I, say, I, I seem to remember it came on two VHSs, I think, which was a marvel at the time. I was like, is this like, does that mean it's as good as Titanic? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's not. Spoilers. And I fucking hate that movie, too. So, like, it's awful. Um, but I think it's kind of crazy how few people have actually experienced Dune in an earnest way. This seems to be one of those books that a lot of people mean to get around to and just never do uh and now i feel like i'm in part of a weird club <laughs> because like, isn't that this... it's it's very occultish book and like and sci-fi world yeah yeah i mean for real i mean you'll find probably more people who have read neuromancer than you will dune and i think that's kind of fucking mind-blowing um and that might that might also be yeah, that might also be the circles that i run into just you know uh from a literary standpoint but Man, it's fucking fascinating how few people, because like I tried to talk to a few people about it as I was reading it, like, you know, at D&D and stuff like that. And everyone's like, no, nah, I never read it, never saw the movie. And I'm like, fucking, whoa, dude, this is crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I'm hoping that this episode kind of, you know, like anything else, student-centric kind of gets people interested in, in reading it. Because it's, it's a very good novel. The movie is got some problems. But, you know, I think a lot of that has to do with the complicated um, nature of the plot. So let's kind of break that down so everyone knows kind of what we're talking about. Um, so Dune is the first in a series of novels that centers around the planet Arrakis, a desert planet also known as Dune. Dune is the home of massive sandworms and the one export that drives the entire market of the universe, the spice melange. Melange just means, just in case you don't know, mixture. Um, or yeah, just mixture. It's a French word. Um, the spice allows for the space guild, guild navigators uh, to do extremely advanced mathematics that humans would be incapable of doing otherwise to fold space and time, making interstellar travel extremely safe and instantaneous. This is basically wormhole theory. It allows them to open a wormhole and go from any one place in the universe to another safely. Which 
is kind of cool. So this is a book that was written in 65, the original novel, I believe. And uh, that's an interesting time because you're in the, those, uh, you know, you're in the same time you're running in the same circles as people like Philip K. Dick and Isaac Asimov and all these people. Um, The fact that this is a very sort of well thought out um, universe as far as like how certain things work, especially with the focus on like moisture and water and things like that, uh, water conservation and uh, those sort of more planetary measures. But when it comes to interstellar travel, I think it's really cool how they were just like, nah, man, Spice let you do it. <laughs> and <laughs> and they, But they describe it in a way that's well enough, like in the universe, it makes a lot of sense and it, and it jives well. But I just I think it's fucking hilarious how there's like so much in the way of describing how water is preserved by these stu- by these suits and all this different cool shit. But just spice makes you travel space. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's because and they kind of go into it slightly, just barely touch on it. The book is like computers are not allowed. Uh, one of the rules of the of the universe at this point in humanity is you can't create a computer that thinks like man. And that's right. because there was a war fought over that and the humans almost lost. Actually, they did lose for a period of time and, and robots ruled the the universe. So, yeah. And that's barely really mentioned in the book. That's like, I feel like. That got mentioned in the first probably 30 pages or so and never brought up again. No, it's not a real major plot point in in the first book. Which is fascinating. I mean, uh, you know, I did a little bit of digging. I didn't want to spoil myself too much because I plan on going through the rest of these books. Um, I did a little bit of wiki digging kind of and found like information about old Earth, I guess they call it, or or, or our current Earth, you know, our, our planet that exists, I guess, in the canon. I'm not sure if that's one of those things that's like, in the core sort of like you should read these books or something that maybe came in a later publication. But either way, like, yeah, dude, there was a whole fucking robot war. <laughs> like yeah. that is just, and that's not the selling point of this book, by the way, is that we did like, we did that, which I think is fascinating. Yeah. So anyway, being in charge of Arrakis Dune desert planet is a big deal. And at the beginning of the film, the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen is being removed from his position of power by the galactic emperor and being replaced by his sworn enemy, Duke Leto Atreides, the good guys. However, this is all a game of Thrones style ruse to rid the emperor of house Atreides, uh, for the good, uh, for good. Cause their popularity is growing in the galaxy and he's afraid of any, Anyone that might replace him, basically. Well, yeah, and the deal is, uh, and he sort of says it in the uh, in the movie, and it's hinted at in the book a little bit also, um, that the sort of governing body aside from the emperor, and I forget what it's called, it's like the land lands meet lands the landsrad landsrad, yeah, uh, is sort of a combination of all these ruling houses, um, and House Atreides is gaining some pretty rapid favor, um, but House Atreides is a Noble house, not in not by birthright, I don't mean, but in in the sense of like they they seem to be more noble type people, uh, and the emperor is afraid of that because that could be you know House Harkonnen seems to be in his pocket as best as I can tell, you know, um, it's, it's that's all interesting, that's all fine, um, but let's talk about some <laughs> let's talk about some of the shit that happens in this movie. That's what I want to get to. Okay. We also mentioned something about sonic weapons and building secret armies and stuff, but that's just not in the book at all. Um, it's so like anyway, a, it turns out it's the Blade Runner of <laughs> Do Android Stream of Electric Sheep adaptations. It's like the Cliff yeah. Notes, <laughs> right? Yeah, they had to come up with some way to explain the Pranabindu, which is a uh, well. We're, we'll talk about the Bene Gesserit in a second, but the Bene Gesserit have this. Uh, 
this way of controlling basically every molecule and muscle and nerve ending in their bodies. It's kind of like moving at matrix speed, you know, the bullet time, but they can do it. They can move super, super fast. And at the time, um, they didn't have the technology to create the special effects for that. So they just decided to substitute it in for weapon weaponry, which is, I get it, you know, makes sense from a time period perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually they do, I never caught this until someone pointed it out in something I was reading about this in, in the research is that Jessica actually uses a power word um, when they come across the Fremen the first time she actually shoots it out and it's not shown very well, like from a, from a shot perspective, she actually uses a sonic word um, using the voice when they first get attacked or ambushed. Yeah. I understand the limitation of like not being able to show a lot of that really cool sort of bullet timey type movement like that's fine special effects at the time were in their infancy um you know as far as uh especially like cgi and digital effects and things like that go but the one of the big parts that falls apart for me in this movie is the weaponry portion of it because in the mm-hmm. book everything is very much fought sort of in a traditional way there's not really uh a lot in the way of gunnery bullshit um and there is a solid fucking 20-minute chunk of this movie that is just dudes yelling and shooting fucking Lucio sound waves at people. Uh, <laughs> and it fucking... I fell asleep the first time. Like, I, I nodded off in my chair, not from exhaustion, not from tiredness, but just because it was like, shit, it's the, it, we're just going to keep cutting back to Maudie riding this fucking sandworm and people yelling, right? All right, cool. For five whole minutes? Oh, fucking yeah. awesome. This is great. Yeah, we'll get to why that is uh, at the end. So... It turns out these Benny Gesserit that we're talking about, they're like a secret matriarchal order who have achieved somewhat superhuman abilities through physical and mental conditioning and the use of said spice, um, have influenced the bloodlines of the important galactic houses in an attempt to create a literal Superman. Um, this Superman has been dubbed the Kwisatz Haderach, which is just a title. Um, and he's the only man who can access the male half of his genetic memory, which is a place that the Benny Gesserit can't see. Which is a very interesting, almost like Assassin's Creed, if you're familiar with that. You know, you're accessing old memories of of your ancestors, but the Bene Gesserit can only see the female half, whereas Paul can see both. Right. Or the Kwisatz Haderach can. Right. Which, yeah. I kind of gave away, but, you know. Yeah, well, I I mean, I would hope that if you're interested in spoilers, you're not listening to this shit before you've read or seen the shit, because this is, (laughs) it's going to get real, real shady from here. Yeah. Uh, So... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I I was going to say, so it it turns out that Paul Atreides, son of Duke Atreides and his concubine, Jessica, why they're not married is actually a huge plot point, um, who Jessica herself is a Bene Gesserit. So their union, like she was only supposed to have girls, but she gave birth to a son thinking that he might be the Kwisatz Haderach. On a hunch, just like, no, 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 no. I got this. I I got this shit. I can do this. (laughs) Uh. So this this is where they stick his hand in the box, right? Uh, which I think becomes possibly one of the most iconic sort of uh, moments in both in the book and in the movie. This is like it's like a very important. It's, it's definitely a sort of uh, minor climax, right? Um, this is where you get the line that everyone knows. Everyone before I mean, well before I'd ever read or seen Dune, I know you know the line. You know, you know I mean? the litany of fear. Right. Pretty cool. I mean, the scene itself is fine. Like, it, the scene itself didn't play out. And we'll talk about, like, the casting, I guess, at some point. Like, I don't think any of the casting really in this movie is great. Um, as far as, like I said, I read this book recently. And uh, 
So at some point, if I wanted to Google a picture of Paul Atreides, there, there are many pictures of our fucking dude from this movie, right? Uh, not how I imagined it at all. And also not how I imagined, uh, this scene going really. However, the sort of, uh, the viewing into the box and seeing his hand melting and shit like that, like that was cool, right? I mean, that was okay. Considering the time. I mean, you know, it is what it is i guess uh sorry i've been quiet the kids are like running outside the door clapping at the dogs for some reason when they know i'm in here it's great um but yeah no i mean it's a slow roll to get into this movie for me like it takes a little while uh the beginning of it just never really interested me at all uh because i think it was because i read the book first uh, so it was like one of those things where you're like, oh, cool, I'm seeing characters, uh, how this guy envisioned them, and not at all how I envisioned them in the least. So uh, I was a little jaded, I guess, is a good word for it. Well, I was going to say, they take they take a weird approach to, I mean, let's, look, let's give David Lynch his due here and say that this is Do we is have to? No, not really. You don't have to forgive this. In fact, he has... Uh, down the line, yes. actually taking his name off this movie many times. Okay. Um, but, I mean, you know, to sort of give the devil his due here, like, you're trying to, con- to condense a very thick book, also a very dense book, into a viewable movie that people will see in theaters, uh, uh, I guess is the assumption. Um, but this scene, to your point, the beginning of this movie, the first like five or so minutes is literally just them like going down a checklist of like, all right, so you're going to meet this character and you're going to meet that character. You're going to meet that character. And they just go down and everybody sort of walks mm-hmm. in one by one. Boom, 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 boom. Here's Patrick Stewart, <laughs> which is Gurney. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Great. Cool. Thanks. It's like the worst episode of friends you could imagine where everyone just shows up one by one and then they start talking about something, but that's how it happens in the movie. And it's yeah. not friends, and there's no Ross or Rachel. I don't know how to handle this. Long story short, the Atreides take control of Arrakis, a.k.a. Dune, and are betrayed by their personal physician, Dr. Yue, who's behind the ultimate betrayal orchestrated by the Baron Vladimir Hakonin and the Emperor. Which is kind of weird, because he's supposed to be specifically trained to not betray his masters. I've never quite figured out how just literally taking his wife and kidnapping her breaks this. That's that's what they imply, and I don't understand. Have you ever seen Taken? Yes, I have. All right. Liam Neeson, a good guy. His daughter gets taken. He becomes I don't his care what title. He, he, he becomes a bad guy. <laughs> In that movie. Like, I understand he's the hero of that movie. He is also a bad guy. That guy is just like, it's just wanton destruction through Paris for like two hours, right? Shit happens, I guess. I mean, that, that, if that is the most unbelievable part of this book to anyone, then fucking Frank Herbert's a genius. Like, you know, like, (laughs) fucking, yeah, sure, he's been specifically trained and it's like a whole thing in the universe. Like, this is their training and they can't betray that and whatever. But like, fucking, who says, like, so what? You know what I mean? I don't know. I just find it weird. Like they make a very big point in the book about and the movie that he has been specifically trained yeah. to not betray, and all it does is taking kidnapping his wife to do it. I don't know. I just don't. I never bought it. That's the, my one B for the whole thing. He he goes on for pages and pages about how they capture water and stills, and yet this is just a giant gaping plot hole to me. Anyway. It's the Tolkien aspect of things, right? Where it's like you need a foil, you need a thing, he wrote a thing and it's fine. And in the moment 
maybe Tolkien felt like writing six pages describing some grass, right? And maybe he didn't feel like describing X relationship or caveat or whatever else happened. Like, you know, just it's a thing I'm willing to, to just suspend my disbelief and be like, fucking sure. Yeah. All right. This betrayal leads to Duke Leto's death, but Paul and Jessica escape into the desert and win the trust of the native people of Arrakis, the Fremen. Uh, Paul falls in love with Chani, a Fremen woman. They train the Fremen in the use of sonic weaponry and use guerrilla warfare to reduce the export of spice to a trickle. This gets the attention of everyone in the galaxy, including the Space Guild and the Emperor, which is like the ultimate supply and demand. Um, trick it sure here. is. Uh, Fuck yeah, but- dude, look at this capitalism. Yeah, what about the Duncan Idaho? What about him? What about him? He dies. I know. And it's such a cool scene in the book, and they didn't really do it much justice in the movie, because Duncan Idaho is like a, a known like uh, sword fighter for the most part, um, or dagger wielder, was it? I forget. Well, so they, they fight duel. They have a sword and a dagger. That's yeah. They, they fight um, um, that riposte style. The weirding. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, that sucked. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of a bummer because I don't even know why Duncan's in the movie. Honestly, like he could cut that part and not have it affect anything, which yep. is sad because he's a cool character. Gets really cool in the next book. Um, yeah. Spoilers. Sorry. So Paul Atreides, now known as Paul Moadib, that's his Fremen name, decides to take the water of life, which is pure spice extract. And do what other no, no other man has done, access all of his female and male genetic memory, and he succeeds. Um, the alternative would be to die. And after succeeding, he's now prescient, uh, which means he can see all possible futures, but all lead to death and galactic jihad. A lot of people probably don't know this about Dune because it seems like, again, we talked earlier, kind of one of those things where not a lot of people have really actually read or seen this movie. Uh Keep in mind something for those of you who may somehow be listening to this without that experience. This is so far, even the movie so far predates the sort of current uh, Western idea of Middle Eastern culture. Um, There are a lot of Middle Eastern Muslim, uh, but also, you know, Buddhist and Taoist uh, philosophies in this book that sort of translate a little bit to the movie. Um, When you hear these words try to keep that in mind <laughs> because yeah this could be a thing that could very much be misconstrued in in poor ways religion is a huge theme in the book uh, not so much in the movie uh which is kind of sad the the catholic church is kind of still around just in name only the orange catholic bible is the the name of the book that the ben Gesserit use um but religion is used as a tool of manipulation of the people in this world um, very overtly, and the, most of the people are not aware of that. Um, and the jihad that I'm talking about is just is just really the straight up literal translation of a holy war in the name of Paul, not in the name of any you know uh, god that we're aware of. But the jihad is literally in his name, uh, whether or not he's alive it doesn't matter because there are versions of the future he sees where he is dead and the war still occurs. So at this point, um, Paul leads the Fremen to attack the capital of Arrakis with stolen atomic weapons and and riding on the sandworms, who turn out to be the source of the spice. Uh, The victorious Atreides Fremen army confronts the Emperor, who, in a last-ditch effort to prevent Paul from taking the throne, allows Fade Ratha Harkonnen, uh, the nephew of the Baron Harkonnen, to represent him in a duel to the death. 
Paul, using his future sight, wins the battle and marries the emperor's daughter, the princess Arulan. And uh, that's an interesting point as well, because the his lover and the mother of his children, Chani, um, the Fremen woman, cannot be, much like his mother, Jessica, is not his father's wife, uh, there's always this this whole thing about political intrigue and like trying to marry above your station. So he straight up tells the princess, I'm not going to have kids with you. Your kids will not be, we will not have kids. You're, we're not going to have sex. You're a marriage of convenience. Yeah. You're a marriage for title and convenience. And he, and Paul becomes the emperor of the galaxy. God emperor of the galaxy. Fuck. Yeah. So let's talk about like what we did like about this film adaptation first. And then we'll talk about the bad stuff because there's tons of bad, but I want to talk about some good stuff. It's, let's go positive. So start with, with you, Remy. What things do you like about this film? Uh, the sandworm scene where they first like learn how to ride the sandworm, uh, that was a very well done scene and probably the... It's an interesting vision to have to like do that as a director and like special effects and all like the teams that went into that. Uh, but I really liked how they did it. It kind of, uh, it kind of gave the book treatment a little more, uh, umph to the movie transition, you know? Uh, but yeah, no, I thought that was pretty all right. I like that. Yeah. I really like the tool. Like the tool, they, they show that, uh, the shovel where it actually lifts up and pierces the, 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 the worms hide. That's yeah. really cool. And, and, and accurate to the book. Oh yeah. Very. It was kind of like, uh, it was kind of like how you always pictured it in your head and then actually happening. So that was cool. I was into it. I had that I had that moment with uh when they re- when they re- revealed Aragorn in The Fellowship of the Ring. Like when that happened, I was like, "Oh shit, that's exactly what he looked like in my mind." Hell yeah. Like that's a you don't get that a lot, man. That's a moment to treasure. And he does a little hair flip. You were into yeah, it. Yeah. A little hair I flip. Fucking, I would fuck Diego <laughs> Mortensen tonight. <laughs> even uh even as Lucifer in uh what the hell was that movie of Christopher Walken? The Prophecy. That's what it was. Sorry. Oh. I've not seen that. Uh, what about me? Um, hmm. You know, I think if I had to pick something positive about this movie, and it's with, it's a bittersweet thing, um, I honestly like a lot of the stylistic choice in this movie, a lot of the sort of art um, and costume and setting and, and just like the concepts that they created and brought to screen were wholly foreign. Um, we will talk later about how that maybe not so incredibly foreign and maybe there was a much better version of this. Um, but I think that the fact that we got what we got is pretty, pretty cool still. Um, you know, there's a lot to, there's a lot of bad to say about this movie, but I think the artistic direction was not hateful. Like it, 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 it's not the worst thing I've ever seen. You know, there's still a lot of really good set uh, set making, a lot of really good costume. There's a lot of bad costume. There's a lot of weird. I'm just, I just want to know why Mentats have bushy eyebrows. I really would love to know that. Um, <laughs> That's in the book. You know, but like, I mean, but like, fucking, yeah, it's it's out there. Uh, Six inch bushy eyebrows is a little bit much. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I think that if I had to pick anything, it wouldn't be a favorite moment in particular. It would be it would be the sort of artistic stylings of the movie. They they played with color well, uh, and a lot of the, especially costuming, I I enjoyed. I'm gonna piggyback on that because I think the costuming is fantastic in this movie for the most part. There's a couple like the Baron's costume is pretty bad most of the time. Yeah. Oh, um, that's awful. 
but like the the Atreides costumes are great. The um, the Fremen the Fremen the still suits are just exactly how, how I imagined them. The only thing that is really wrong is that uh, they don't show the face mask. Yeah, like basically your entire face and head should be covered by the still suit because you're trying to capture all the moisture from your body. Granted, that doesn't play well on screen, so I understand yeah. why they didn't do that. Um, the hands included, like they show their fingertips. Uh, and they're kind of like, like, uh, they're not, they're, their hands are not covered really at all, uh, which is too bad. Um, but the, even the nose piece is really, really good. Um, they just don't show the mouthpiece that often. Uh, it's just, and Liat Kynes, uh, I can't, I'm, I'm blanking on his name. He's a great James actor. Vontado. Yes. Oh, he was, he is my Liat Kynes. Like when I see him in that role, I'm like, wow, that's perfect. Max, He's such James. a good actor. I said Max. It's, it's Max Vonsidow. Uh, yeah. I said James. <laughs> No, I knew who you meant. Um, yeah, costuming in this is, for the most part, pretty pretty on point. Uh, the directing, oof, we'll get into that a little bit. So let's talk about, I'm going to skip the themes because we really go down in some pretty dark places. And, and, and I mean, obviously the themes of the book are, are water, you know, cycles, lots of betrayal. Um, and then like this whole hum- humanity, like what is human, what is animal thing? Mm-hmm. And that comes back and forth a lot. And the classic um, literary trope of man versus nature, like literally is the book. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, yeah. Quite, quite literally the entire book. Um, let's talk about the cast. Cause this is like, like a star studded cast for 19, I believe this came out in 1984. Mm-hmm. Um, this is crazy. Like if you look at this now, this is huge. We've got um, Francesca Anise as Lady Jessica. She was the widow in the web in Kroll. Um, Brad Dourif as Peter DeVries. He was the original choice for Joker in Batman 89 and, and the voice of Chucky to this day, in case you didn't know that. Um, I It's funny because when I saw him, I was like, I know this guy from something. And then I remembered that I saw his face during the, the Batman 89 research. That's pretty, pretty interesting. Um, Jose Ferreira. Ferrer uh, is the Padisha Emperor. He's the father of Miguel Ferrer, who's the villain in Blank Check. So literally, our last week's episode's villain is connected to Dune. Like, like right? <laughs> Unplanned, but pretty good. <laughs> pretty good. Um, Linda Hunt has a shout out. Mapes, uh, she's one of the teachers in Kindergarten Cop. You've seen her in a bunch of things. She's like in yeah. little tiny parts, pieces here and there. Um, Freddie Jones is Thufer Hawat. He was um, in near in crawl, so go back and listen to our crawl episode. We talk about that. Um, Freddie, jo- or sorry, uh, uh, Richard Jordan as Duncan Idaho. He's in the Hunt for Red October. Unfortunately, he passed away of a brain tumor in like 1992. Very tragic. He was only like 40. Um, yeah, yeah. All right, here's our boy Kyle McLaughlin as Fuck Paul yeah. Atreides. Would we say our boy really? Because what has he really done after Twin Peaks for us? Like you tell me, uh, Twin Peaks the revival. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. He was in a couple of like kind of low budget films that I remember mm-hmm. seeing like posters up at like the movie stores when I went to rent videos, and I was like, I don't know if I want to watch this. No, he's like a he's like a C or D list actor ac- across the board. But because because of my love for David Lynch and my love for Twin Peaks. Kyle McLaughlin is my boy. He is not, however, and we're going to talk about this later. He is not my fucking Paul Atreides. Let's talk about it now, because this is his debut role. And before this, he'd only done like community theater, as far as I could tell. Um, and he went on. They were they they tried to cast this role for like a year. Like it took him a long time. And for whatever reason, like he headed off with David and the the producers 
Um, and he got the job. Like this is this is a huge job for your first role in yeah. Hollywood. And I don't think he's that good. Nope. Did not believe him as Paul for about three seconds. Like there's a couple of scenes where he delivers a line really well, and uh, that's all right. But yeah, like it. It's tough to watch him as Paul Atreides because I think everybody pictures Paul Atreides their own way, which is probably why this role was so difficult to cast. I mean, well, the other thing is he's supposed to be like 15. 16. Yeah. 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 And, and even, and even not as like youthful, fucking 6'1". Yeah, not 6'1". He's pretty, he's like, what, like 5'8", 5'9", 5'10", something like that? Something like that. Like, they casted him better in the miniseries than they did in the uh, movie. Like I said, I, I, I like Paul McLaughlin. I mean, I, I do. And I honestly think that Acting in this role, probably given the direction that he got from from folks like David Lynch, uh, I think considering he did well. But, you know, that being said, the character of Paul fucking 400% does not feel like Paul from the book. Not even a little bit. And looking at just physically, the, you know, the physical characteristics, like you guys said, I don't, I don't fucking buy it. Not for a minute. Not at all. That's not my dude. Yeah, we're going to do some dream casting later. I'm interested to see what we all pick for Paul because it's such a hard role to cast. You know, he he he's the linchpin of the entire film. Obviously. While we're while we're on that subject though, when we do the dream casting, is this casting in 1984 or is this modern day remake situation? Modern. Okay. Okay. Right, Denis. Fine. Um. Yeah, we'll talk about it. And then Virginia Madsen as Princess Urulan. Which is weird because so I have like Madsen, like like Michael Madsen, straight up. This is Michael Madsen's Madsen's um, sister, who like consistently works like on a regular basis, but like nothing you've ever heard of, probably. Who would I know that from? Uh, who would I know that that Michael Madsen Michael from? Madsen? Uh, he works a lot with uh, Tarantino. He's in Reservoir Dogs. He's the dude who cuts off. Uh, oh, that guy, Chris Got Ross. It. Yep. Here. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Um, then we got Everett McGill as Stilgar. Not much like acting to speak of. He worked on Twin Peaks as well. Um, I think he's actually like dead on Stilgar to me. Then we'll talk about uh, Kenneth McMillan as the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. Probably the biggest role um, in his career and might be more notice- notable to our parents. I-, I think he's horrible in this movie. I'm going to be honest. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the first things I said when I started watching this was that's not my Paul, and then like holy shit, how could they fuck up the Baron so badly? It, the Baron was really like kind of off-putting for me. Uh, like, there's a few roles that they probably could have filled better, and I, I, when we do our dream cast at the end, I, I can't wait to see a reaction to what I've chosen uh, because I think both of you will either cringe or be very thrilled with me. But um, yeah, I didn't care for the Baron's acting in this. I really like Sian Phillips, who played the Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mohiam. Um, I actually thought she was kind of knocked out of the park, personally. Um, her Gam Jabbar scene is really good. I, I, I like her. I don't know. It's weird. Uh, the aesthetic, though, of the, the Bene Gesserit in this movie is very on point for the book. Yeah. Um, she was pretty believable, and you know, she definitely acted. Uh, I think a couple of people just kind of like wrote it in for this one um, mm-hmm. or had really shitty acting direction. If you watch some episodes of Twin Peaks, you can always see who those actors are as well. Uh, so it's kind of uh, kind of a, a David Lynch pin, do we call it at that point? <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah, maybe. 
Oh, what do you guys think of Jurgen Proc now as the Duke Lido Atreides? Passable. I mean, he looked the part. Um, you know, he was okay. Uh, I don't even remember his name. Like to be honest, like <laughs> when you wrote it on the notes, I was like, "Who the hell's Jurgen Proc now?" And then I was like, "Oh, okay, Lido Atreides." <laughs> I guess that makes sense now. But yeah, I'd never heard of him before this movie, so I don't think I've seen him in anything since. All right, we're gonna talk about only a couple more because there's so many cast members in this. Um, I want to talk about Sean Young. She's Chani. She is uh, the she's uh, in Blade Runner obviously as um she plays rachel um it's really sad because she's like barely in this movie at all she maybe has 40 seconds maybe even 60 seconds of of screen time or less um i don't even again like why even have this love interest if if you're not going to show her that much you know it just doesn't make any sense to me uh you cut that whole thing it, it has no no bearing on the film well, I think she was really preparing for her role later on in life uh, as uh, Lieutenant Einhorn. Right. Yes, that's right. Uh, then we got, uh, let's talk about um, Max. We talked about Max von Sydow. He's great, I, I think. I mean, he's got a small role, but solid actor. Good dude. Looks, looks, he's so cool. Feel, feels really like a good kinds too. I mean, like I, I saw him and was like, sure. Yeah, that's, that checks yeah. out. Yeah. Um, Dean Stockwell is Dr. Wellington Yue, um, who I love Dean Stockwell because I love Quantum Leap and he's plays, he plays Al on Quantum Leap. So for me, it was like, oh yeah, it's Al. I love Al. And then he's like the betrayer guy. So, eh. And then, um, let's talk about Sting. Oh boy. Do we have to? I'd rather not. Honestly, like kind of across the board, I kind of fucking hate Sting. Hey, by the way, he just put out an album with Shaggy. That's right. Shaggy, the rapper. Well, I mean. We can really redeem his career post-police with at least uh, Desert Rose. That was a pretty good tune. Yeah, it was all right. I'll allow it. Not a banger, but, you know, not bad. So he he played Fade Rautha, and, like, he was the biggest get of the film as far as, like, star power goes. Um, like, popularity at the time, the police were, were very big. And... They actually showed him as like a main character on some of the the posters, which is crazy to me because that's way misleading. I thought he was. I mean, like, and having seen this again, I didn't remember anything about this, but I know that I rented it once from Blockbuster when I was like 13 or 14. Uh, didn't remember really anything about watching it or anything like that. So when I went to go watch it again, I thought for some fucking reason that Sting was going to play Paul because he seems like he's presented in a lot of in a lot of media as sort of the main guy. You know, yeah, no. Uh, in fact, uh, I saw a lot of interviews with David Lynch um, at the time, and he had to tell people, especially in in overseas, that like, no, Sting is in the movie, but he's not like a major part, and like let everybody down every time. Yep. Um, and then lastly, Patrick Stewart, my boy, my second dad, my third dad, my fourth dad, a good fifth dad. dad, a good dad, Gurney Halleck, which is an interesting casting choice. It wouldn't be my choice for gurney because i think he's supposed to be kind of like like i think kind of mentioned he has like a pop belly you know because he's kind of like he's a little bit fat because he's he's old but he's also like a super good fighter at the same time um and they don't do a good enough job in my opinion of showing the the ink vine scar and like him like he's supposed to scratch it whenever he gets nervous and stuff and this time i was looking for it and and they do have it on his face 
Uh, I, I will also say Patrick has the best scene in this film because he gets to hold a pug in his jacket and yell for House Atreides and run into battle yes. waddling with this pug inside of his jacket and firing his gun. That is the best scene in the film. Hey, David Lynch, what the fuck? Why are there <laughs> dogs in this fucking movie, you monster, dude? Like, I love David Lynch so much, but what the fuck is with the dogs? And the cat, can we just mention that? By the way, you have to milk a cat to keep yourself from fucking dying from your horrible poisoning that you've received. Get the fuck out of here. I think that's in the book, though. I think that's pretty no, accurate to no. the book. In the book, he has to take fucking uh, he has to take his antidote that's served with his food every day, and it's a method to keep him from leaving because uh, if he leaves, then he won't get his, he won't get his antidote. Right in the right. Bo- in the movie, they just change that to like, nah, you get your antidote, but you have to milk it from this fucking hairless sphinx cat. Yeah, that's weird. So let's talk about production, um, man. This movie had been like trying to be made for like 20 years before it it actually hit the screen. There's in fact an entire documentary about a, another group of people who were trying to uh to beat the De Laurentiis's um Raffaello and Dino De Laurentiis are the main producers on this film to to get the rights to Dune from Frank Herbert. Um that's Yodoransky. I believe that's how you say his name. There's a there's a great documentary called um Yodoransky's Dune. And that dude's insane. Uh, it's a great watch because if you're if you're interested in Dune uh, at all, if you're a fan of Dune, then you know you you kind of always want a better film to be made. And I don't think Yodoransky's Dune would be any better than David Lynch's Dune, but it sure would be crazy. Uh, it's definitely worth checking out. That doc that documentary, by the way, just to just a really quick get on that that documentary, amazing. Like that is it's a, very that is good. a good ass documentary, and it's biased i think i think it's biased to the fact that like no this would have been the better thing this would have been a good choice um i'm not entirely convinced it would have been an, at least a faithful uh rendition you know what i mean yeah uh, but it would have been fucking crazy <laughs> like i there's a universe where that exists and that's where i want to be i i just want to see it because i mean the casting was also kind of as crazy as the david lynch stuff i mean david carradine uh, as leto atreides what was the other one? Mick Jagger as Fade Rafa. I mean, it's kind of similar. There's almost parallels with David Lynch's casting choices and and Yodoransky's. Um, yeah, it's just weird. Orson Welles as the Baron Harkonnen. Like, that's actually really good casting, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Especially, my God, did you see the pictures they, they showed during uh, the documentary? Like, Jesus, yes. Yeah, Salvador Dali as the Emperor. Like, that makes so much sense to me. Like, Salvador Dali kind of is the Emperor... Uh, I mean, even in real life, like, just totally crazy and thinks he's the center of the world. Yeah. Um, I don't think he'd be a good actor, but that's, I mean, that's the thing. Yodoransky is an artist in, oh, yeah. to, like, into an extreme level, whereas David Lynch actually like has yeah. to work in budgets. And have stuff. you ever seen The Holy Mountain? I have not. Pre- I, I, I want work. to. You should watch it. It's fucking bonkers. I mean, just <laughs> unreal. That movie would have been an artistic masterpiece. Like it may not have been a great Dune movie, but it would have been a fucking artistic masterpiece. Right. So like in 1971, that's when the, the Yodoransky stuff happens. And then Dino De Laurentiis, um, he purchased the rights from, from Gibbon Consortium, which is the, the people trying to make the Yodoransky film. Um, and De Laurentiis commissioned uh, Frank Herbert to write a screenplay in 1978 
which is 175 pages long, which is like three hours of screen time. Uh, that did, that it was not going to work. Um, he tried to, he did hire Ridley Scott to do the film. Um, but that fell through. H.R. Geiger was retained from uh, Yodoransky's production team to do a lot of the art, which you can kind of see the influence of, um, especially with the Harkonnen sets and, and wide shots. But, you know, after several months out, it just, it just fell apart. But then in 1981, the nine-year film rights were set to expire, so De Laurentiis renegotiated the rights uh, from Frank Herbert, adding to them the rights to the Dune sequels, um, including the unwritten sequels because he was still writing books at that time. And after seeing The Elephant Man, which was produced by Dino De Laurentiis' daughter, Raffaella, um, he decided to hire David Lynch. So that's where David comes in. And so David rewrote a script from scratch. He read the book, and then... Dino kind of told him that he was directing the film. He didn't really ask. He just kind of said, you're going to direct Dune. And he said, okay. And then here's the book and read it and then let me know. And he read it and he liked it. And then uh, he wrote the script, which I think is actually a pretty good script. It's not terrible. It's 135 pages. Um, it was, there were some other teams that helped, you know, dr- with some rewrites and stuff, but David Lynch does have a writing credit on, on it. Um, but it's supposed to be like a three-hour film. Yeah. It's a lot of time. Uh, yeah. Almost enough where one would think that maybe a part one and part two movie might have done it justice. Yeah, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot because Dune is a very long film and there's a lot of stuff that happens in it. Or long, long book. And I was wondering, where would you cut that, Remy? Where would you put that end of part one? I don't know. Uh, like, I mean, a lot of it, a lot of the story elements from the book were there, but a lot of them were uh, tainted or missing. So I don't know. I think it would have to start somewhere with the Fremen before like his whole Maudibing thing. You know what I mean? The mm-hmm. powering of his voice, if you will. And um, I think that would probably have been like a good cut. Like, hey, guys, we going to take back the planet and fucking, you know, cut to whatever black curtains uh, credits and then like a little spoiler scene uh, as a teaser at the end of the trailer. If we've learned anything from Marvel movies, that's how you do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I I would agree with that. And I would think a second option would be uh, when the ornithopter crashes with he and Jessica and, and just literally like horrible. Imagine like very very visceral sort of black hawk down kind of crash situation and then smash cut to black and that's it and come back for next time guys <laughs> yeah no that could totally work um uh, i would if you do that though because that's exactly where i would cut it as well so both of you i think hit the nail on the head is opening summer for part one and end of summer for part two like literally two oh, months it's gotta be close yeah it's gotta be filmed together as one giant film and then Release like uh, Back to the Future 2, 3, you know? Makes sense to me. So the rough cut of Dune without post-production effects ran over four hours long, uh, but Lynch intended cutting the film uh, down to three, or almost three. Universal and the film's financiers expected a standard two-hour cut. Um, Dino, De Laurentiis, and Raffaella, and Lynch uh, exercised, uh, or sorry, excised numerous scenes Filmed new scenes that simplified or concentrated plot elements and added voiceover narrations, plus a new introduction by Virginia Madsen, which I kind of think makes sense. Uh, it simplifies a lot of the plot. 
Um, contrary to rumor, Lynch made no other version besides the theatrical cut. Um, but there was a TV version aired in 1988 um, in two parts, totaling 186 minutes, including a What Happened Last Night recap and second credit roll. Um, Lynch disavowed this version and had his name removed from the credits. And that version's like, you can find it on DVD and stuff, but it's kind of rare. And then there's other versions that have been spliced together over time. I've seen a couple of different edits on YouTube as well you might be able to find. But the thing is, is David Lynch got kicked out of the editing room. Like he wanted a three-hour cut. They wouldn't give it to him. They wouldn't even give him like a, like a hey, you can do your own version of it and release it later kind of thing on, on VHS or whatever. Uh, they just kind of said, we wanted two hours and that's it. And then he he thought it violated his art. And he is an artist and, and I can see that. So every time they ask him to come back and re-edit the film because they have all the extra stuff, he says no. Which is kind of sad because I actually do want to see the three-hour version of this movie. It could be better. Yeah, I would watch it. I mean, um, I think that he was neutered in a lot of ways, uh, you know, out of the editing room and also probably in a lot of creative decisions. I think there was probably a, a bit of a stain left from Yodorovsky's attempt at uh, making Dune. And I think that there were a lot of people who were like, mm, we got we to gotta avoid a lot of those bad decisions that were made there. Um, so those two things coming together. It's just it's just bad news because I mean like we said a thousand times David Lynch fucking hates this movie and has gone so far as to you know in this uh, TV cut but also in other editions credit himself under different names or uh, under Alan Smithy I believe is like I think Alan Smithy is the one that's a common pseudonym used for directors who like are like I'm not putting my name on this shit right that is actually 100 percent true yeah I mean the film didn't do well that's that's a big part of the problem. um it got pretty much roasted at uh on the critics level. I think there's only one or two critics, actually one critic that right wrote for Newsweek at the time uh he liked it a lot, and then there was a couple of screenwriters who actually wrote opinion pieces saying that you know they liked the film but I mean over the years there have been a few people who have gone back and watched the film and you know it's it's I think it's metacritic score isn't too bad on Rotten Tomatoes it's just you know it it was a flop and I think the thing that keeps it going is people who read the book and then they watch the film and they're like I mean it's not terrible it's pretty good right I mean yeah. we got a movie but then you know there is a sci-fi series and people like that a lot more which is hilarious because people also very much don't like that either. <laughs> I have heard I have heard more like kind of like uh, it's more Dune, I guess, than hey, it was really cool. You know what I mean? I think when it comes down to it, Dune is just uncastable and just like uh, maybe unfilmable. For twenty years, they said that about uh, thirty years. They said that about Lord of the Rings as well. You know, they said it would only survive as an animated thing because it's so grandiose, and you know, we got it. I think it just takes the right studio to give the right director carte blanche to do whatever the fuck they want. Uh, it'll be an expensive movie if it's ever done correctly, you know? Yeah, it's interesting because Denis Villeneuve, um, the director of Arrival, um, is supposedly attached to a, a remake. And I'm all in on that. I think he's a great director. I believe he also directed Blade Runner. He so did. Yep, the new Blade Runner movie. Blade Runner 2049, which is an amazing film. And if he brings my boy Ryan Gosling on board in some capacity, I'm like there day one. So, yeah. Oh, fuck. Yeah, dude. I like the way you're thinking. 
with a new movie coming out, um, no announcements other than the fact that like it's being it's being optioned and he's attached to it. Um, with a new movie coming out, Caleb, I believe it's yes. time for dream casting. Dream casting. I need a, I'm gonna put a bump on for this. <laughs> That's right. This is where we uh we cast the movie. Now, this movie has like an absurd amount of characters. If we were to cast every single one, which would be totally fun to do, it'd be a whole separate podcast. So we're not gonna do that. We are going to talk about the main characters, and maybe if you've got an extra character that you really, really feel strongly about, we'll talk about that too. But we're gonna talk about Paul, Lido, Jessica, the Baron, and Duncan Idaho. Because uh, we all kind of like Duncan because he's a way better character in the books than the film. So I'll go first. For Paul, I chose Josh Hutcherson. Um, okay. He's in the, um, the, the Hunger Games movies. Yes. He's young. He looks young. First of all, I mean, he's like 25. I think he's a, is he? Because I, I feel like he's like my age, but he definitely has a baby face. He looks way younger than he is. And so he can he could play the, that up role where he ages. It's actually really hard to find information on um, really young actors online that are not like completely looking like children. Like you kind of need to find somebody that can can waffle and, and kind of go both ways. And that's kind of the trick with with Paul. Um. Then Leto, I have Kyle McLaughlin in a kind of a stunt casting here. I thought it'd be funny to have Kyle play his father in a reboot. <laughs> I, I like it. I like anything that guy could be in. That just seems okay. Yeah. Um, the lady Jessica, I picked Julianne Moore. I think Interesting. She's, I think she's hot, personally. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Empirically. And she's about the right age for, you know, for Kyle McLaughlin to be interested in her. Um, and then the Baron. Now this is this is the hardest casting. Um, I think of other than Paul in the entire film is the Baron because the Baron has to be scary. He has to be ugly and terrifying at the same time, which is not hard to do. But I think that whenever they do remake this film, this character will probably be mostly CGI or practical effects. Probably. So who he who plays him has to be a great character actor and also like intimidating. I think Ron Perlman would be oh. amazing in this Damn. role. That's not a bad that's not a bad deal. His voice is super intimidating. Yeah. He's a great villain and a great hero. You he's know, got he that both. he's got that sort of lower like that extended lower lip chin situation that sort mm-hmm. of leads to that kind of mocap terror that could happen. Like that's that you know what? Okay. He'd That's also fine. be used to prosthetics, so. Yeah, yeah. very much so. Uh, and then my Duncan Idaho, I went with Chiwetel Ejiofor. Who? <laughs> he plays the believer in Serenity. Um, he's one of the, uh, the main roles in uh, 12 Years a Slave, I believe, but I can't remember the name of his character. Oh, he's the guy who hunts down uh, the crew, right? Correct. The one who wants to fall on, if you're going to die, you may as well fall on your sword and be noble or whatever. Right. Yeah. yeah like he's that. also, do- he's Mordo in Doctor Strange. Um, okay. That's an interesting choice. <laughs> Alex has a weird grin on his face, so we'll see what he has going on. Um, next up, why don't we go with, let's go with Remy. <clears throat> All right. 
So, Paul, I kind of thought about this because if they're doing a movie, they're going to be doing it within however many years or whatever. And I, I thought the actor who's almost just right into his teens uh, to actually pull off like what I think Paul Atreides would look like in my head with like the hair and like the nobility sort of look. Uh, believe it or not, I chose Finn Wolfhard from Stranger Things. Oh, OK. Yeah. I think he would be perfect, especially they could do that tint of blue on his eyes and it would look like it actually belonged there after the whole spice thing. Um, I kind of like the idea of him as Paul Atreides because he could be very believable and I fucking loved him in it. So it doesn't matter to me. He, you know, facially, the facial structure kind of has that thing, that sort of hawkish look to it, right? Yeah, he looks like a Um, noble almost. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Paul is described more often than not in the beginning of the book, at least, as being small for his age and everything. Like, that's fucking, that's a good, nicely done, Remy. How old is he? Uh, he's like 14, I think. Okay. 15? He's 15 currently, yep. Yeah. Uh, Jessica, I chose Ava Green. Mm-hmm. Uh, former Bond girl. Uh, but oh, okay. She can act. Uh you know, she was a great in Casino Royale, uh, but I think she could kill that fucking part. Like, no one could ever would like Pokemon. She's hot. Yeah, I like she's her a lot. Super fucking hot. She's uh, actually perfect. That's a, that's actually a really good casting, Remy. I'm I'm. I think my idea was bad. Yeah. Know. Let's go with Leto now. Now, Leto, you need to find somebody who they could either cast as like kind of. Like an older person, as in like he's been a noble and whatever his whole life. I actually kind of thought of Jeremy Irons for that role. Ooh. He kind of has that regalness that he brings to most of his roles. Like even in, uh, what was that bad dragon movie, Aragorn? Aragorn. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Aragorn? Yeah, Aragorn? Yeah, he was yeah. great in that, despite, you know, it being Star Wars, but with dragons. Um, but yeah, I liked him a lot and I kind of thought he would make a good Leto. He okay. would. All right. Now, Baron Harkonnen is the one I've been waiting to talk to you guys about because I've been thinking about this for a very long time of who I think would be perfect in a recast for that. And Caleb, you and I talked uh, off the old uh, pod here about, you know, how hard it would be to cast this movie. But there's one person who's very underrated in uh, his aesthetics and if it uh, for prosthetics or if he was doing voiceovers and CGI that no one ever really thinks about. And Alex will recently know him as a mechanic of sorts from John Wick, but uh, the original clown, John Leguizamo. Oh. Oh, my God. Oh, my. Oh, my God. Yep. And uh, that's probably the best pick you're going to find because John Leguizamo can act the shit out of anything if he wants to. That is fucking unreal. I can't even... (laughs) I can't believe you did it. I can't believe you've done it. Not even done yet. Duncan Idaho. Duncan Idaho, you have to have somebody who's between his 30s and 50s to really play this role very well. And there's a whole slew of actors that could probably pull it off. Uh, Russell Crowe. Ooh. Mm, Okay. I like that. He need to lose some weight. He's got to drop some LBs. He's got a little fat lately. Well, I mean, you guys could use him as Gurney too, I suppose. But I mean, but also, but also, when you're fucking, you know, when you're at Russell Crowe status, that's a six month journey to being fucking shredded again. You know, that's, oh, that's true. Deal. He would make an excellent Gurney. I, I actually really like that more. All right, how about Gosling as Duncan Idaho then? 
Yeah. Fuck yeah, dude. I could, <laughs> he could just be, he could play the whole movie. Exactly. He could be, he could be can we fit? Can we fit Gosling into every Dreamcast we ever do? The answer <laughs> is yes. Try. <laughs> yeah. All right, Alex, your turn. All right, folks, we're going to do this one quick and dirty. All right. Do it. Lito, Mads Mikkelsen. Sure. Yeah. yeah all right. That's See my it? guy for that. He's also my like guy it. for everything. I fucking, he's my dad. I love him. <laughs> um, Paul is going to be one that you guys may or may not uh, certainly agree with, but uh, may, or not, may or may not even recognize. Uh, Dacre Montgomery, who played the Red Ranger in the recent Power Rangers movie, the 2016 or whatever Power Rangers movie. So um, okay. It's fine. But okay. uh, like it's fucking Power Rangers wasn't good either, dude. So like at some point the movie's bad and it's fine. Uh, oh yeah, I can see him. But yeah. I think the look is there. I think he's also in that perfect sort of age where all they have to do is tell him to shave and make his hair a little longer and moppier, and he looks young. And then let him get a little bit of stubble on him, and suddenly he's like thirty, right? Um, right. He's in that perfect kind of age, and he has that perfect bone structure for playing any like a fifteen-year gap of age. He played Billy Hargrove on Stranger Things, the bully kid, Remy. So you would know. Yep. You know who I'm talking about? Yeah. Uh, Jessica, the lady Jessica, I have chosen one Katie Seagal, uh, Katie wife, Seagal, wife from married with children. She's in sons of anarchy. She's Leela. Oh Futurama. yeah. I love her. She's funny. Yeah. I think hit her with a die job. That's, that's my pick. Um, I don't I know like why it. I feel like she, she's like, she's like beautiful, but she's like matronly, you know, in a way. And in a lot of movies, she does play more of a sort of comedic role and stuff like that. But, um, I think that her voice, for whatever reason, feels mm. good to me as Lady Jessica. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the Baron, as we said earlier, that was sort of the hardest decision for me. Um, I came to Mark Addy, who played Robert Baratheon in the Game of Thrones series. Yes. Yeah, he'd be oh, good. Wow. He'd wow. be really good. He's already been yeah. like kind of a douchebag, so he fits that <laughs> kind of right. Yeah, he's he's been allowed to be a, a a fat bastard who loves eating and you know is a general asshole. Um, and I think that I think it would work. And and even if they add on to him with with prosthetics or CGI or anything else, like he's a great he's he's a great facial character actor. Um, so I think that he could really pull through on that side as well. Nice. Um, then we have Duncan Idaho. And this is going to be a controversial pick, maybe. Uh, in reading the book recently, he was described as a darker skinned man. Um, you know, he has, and he has a sort of a darker face with strong features and everything. Uh, I choose Idris Elba as my Duncan Idaho. That's Duncan excellent Idaho. choice. Excellent yeah. choice. Yeah, that's Duncan like, Idaho. I, it feels good. He's crazy athletic. He's also got that sort of wizened uh, situation. Like I, that's that's when I was reading the book, that was who I was imagining. Um, and then I have a bonus character who is Dr. Yui as B.D. Wong. Good choice. Okay. Yeah. He'd be good. I could see that. That's my cast. I liked it. I would see all three of these films, personally. Right? Yeah, it was a good cast. Um, I, I like the dream cast section of the movie uh, part. I was telling Caleb that off pod. I'm like, yeah, it's really good. I, I really like that. It's a fun game, right? It is a fun game. It's, it's a treat for the fans. So before we, we get out of here, I just want to um, take a second because we, we've all read the book now. Um, I made Alex read the book bef- and then watch the movie. Uh, I think it's pretty important that we talk about the book separately and just say, I, I want to ask you, Alex, as somebody who has only recently read it, do you recommend reading the book? 
I would say even even like outside outside of the movie, outside of this discussion, outside of everything else, I think that Dune is perhaps one of the most important pieces of science fiction literature, um, and possibly one of the most important fiction pieces that I've ever read because seeing where Dune led um, to from everything from Yodorovsky's Dune almost being made to this movie being made, which, you know, influenced a lot of star Wars and uh, Terminator and just like all this different stuff that came down the line from this very direct lineage, going back to Frank Herbert's Dune. um, I think that makes it important, but I think for the quality of the book, if you don't care about those type of things, if you just want a good story, Dune is also one of the most fully realized first entries in a sci-fi book in a sci-fi series that I've ever read. I mean, it is so very fully realized for someone who was not necessarily a, is not a Tolkien, right? He's not a a polyglot. He's not a linguist. He's not a, uh, he's not a historian. He's just a fucking guy, you know? Um, So for his, for his first entry in this series to come out of gate swinging as hard as this one does, like, fuck yeah, dude, I think you should read it. And I'll be taking time out of my busy ass schedule to sit down and read more. You should. Um, I agree with the, the, first entry there like it was probably the one book that i knew that it was a series next to foundation that i was super wanting to read through and uh, i'm a huge asimov fan i've read almost every one of his works even him explaining the bible but herbert does something magical with this fucking book um and it kind of keeps you clutching on it through the next two and it's really impressive what he did overall with this work um but yeah no he's definitely godfather of sci-fi sort of mentality i suppose with mm-hmm. what he does uh it's him asimov vonnegut and dick yep absolutely I, I couldn't agree more um i'll just say you need to if you're interested in reading dune read dune dune messiah which is the direct sequel um, children of dune and then god emperor of dune after that you don't really need to read the rest if you're interested in, in the universe and, and you you know you really really love it Continue. There's Heretics, Chapter House Dune, and after that, there's like ten more books. Extended Universe Dune parts one through ten. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. it gets crazy because because Frank Herbert passed away and his son took over and he has a co-writer. Yeah, I haven't read any of those. I hear they're okay, but the first, I guess, the Tetrilogy four, right? They're worth your time, and I'm just gonna end it there. Thanks, guys, for joining me as we talk about one of my favorite sci-fi series ever. Um, we did it. We did it, so, guys. Yep. Yeah, dog. Uh, you, you can find us on the Ninja Pancake Network. Um, we are on there with other shows like Bombshell Jackets, which Remy is on. He's a It's co-host. the worst show. Don't listen it's all to about, it. What's it about, Remy? It's about Tom Clancy's The Division, uh, an Ubisoft mm-hmm. joint. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's Loot Shoot Lane, which is a Blizzard Games podcast, and the GNA podcast, which is about alcohol and nerdy stuff. Uh, thank you to Speaker Freaks for the Geek Squatch theme. Check out their music at speakerfreaks.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes, rate us, and leave us a comment. Um, if you want us to cover a specific topic, feel free to tweet at us at Geek Squatch Pod. I've got a couple people who have asked for some specific movies. Um, our topics and um, while we have like everything planned out so till September or so I am definitely willing to you know move things and shift them around because uh, we are not locked into anything um, so uh, if you're out there Jocelyn just so you know we are going to cover Tombstone that is going to happen I love that movie uh, so that's gonna yeah exactly I'll be your Huckleberry um, follow us like I said on Twitter at Geek Squatch Pod for that kind of stuff um 
Leave us a voicemail at 540-692-9165. You can follow Alex on Twitter at WA Hirsch, me at Caleb MCC, and Remy at Rimpency. Papaya. Rimpency Papaya? No, just Are Papaya. You know, oh, okay. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> so that Butlerian Jihad stuff, the the computer war stuff. It's mm. like super underrated as far as like a concept. I mean, 1965, you know, we're talking about the, the 60s, talking about straight up war with robots is insane. Like, I mean, the dude was like uh, like 30 years ahead of his time. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's 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 insane to me. Uh, there's a lot going on in this book that <laughs> I just uh, like, I feel like I kind of need to I feel like I kind of need to read this again. Uh, it won't be until I until I get some more of these uh, sequels under my belt, and probably then even separated by a, a few months or years. But this feels like a book that you can reread, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are a lot that you can't. Uh, but man, I I'm just through reading the book, I had to stop myself from googling things because I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm I'm reading something and I'm like, okay, well, like, tell me tell me about this Balerian Jihad or like, oh, maybe tell me about what is like, is Earth is and this is set in our universe? Is Earth there? Uh, or what, you know, let me fucking look up some illustrations of Duncan Idaho and see what other people have come up with, which by the way, spoilers, not a lot of fucking fan art either from the shit, which blows my mind because this seems like something that artists, you know, if you read this and you have the ability to create art that you would be inspired to do so. There've been a lot of, um, video games, weirdly enough, but yeah, I mean like strategy stuff. Yeah. Starcraft uh, stuff. I booted one up. It's not good. (laughs) <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't fine uh but i don't know man there's there's a lot here i'm really glad that i that i got to experience it i'm glad you, you enjoyed it i was kind of nervous honestly <laughs> yeah i i mean i was too i was you know after about the first 15 or 20 pages i was like this fucking sucks <laughs> you know because it's like there's a lot of heady concept and stuff in there i'm like okay i can see there's this world building or whatever and i was like this better fucking stop quick and we better get to something otherwise i'm gonna fucking lose my mind uh slow burn but uh once you get to book two especially if you're not into it by then once you get to book two it will book two of dune the original novel the, the second yeah the, they break sections yeah uh man yeah you are fucking head over heels in love with that shit by then i'm sure 